Greetings, greetings, greetings. Today's read of Water and the Spirit, Ritual, Magic, and Initiation in the Life of an African Shaman, written by Melidoma Somme, Chapter 12, Trying to Fit Back into Village. The cold season of November through January had passed, followed by the days of heat. In April, it became humid with the sudden coming of the rain. Fields were being prepared for planting, and the air smelled damp, like an egg about to hatch. Every morning, I followed my brothers to the farm and watched them work, thinking that their literacy in farming was a perfect match for mine in another area. Initially, I had tried to work with them, but I was so clumsy. I was more of a hindrance than a help. My father suggested that I watch and learn instead. Before the fields can be sown, there had to be a planting ceremony. It began with a community ritual at the house of the chief of the earth shrine. Every head of a household brought sample seeds to the priest. We brought red millet, white millet, corn, ground nuts, beans, and grains my father wouldn't name because naming them would kill them. Among the Dagara, some things are known not for what they are, but for what they do. The Dagara avoid identifying them in order to ensure that their magical properties stay alive. In the village, anything referred to as Yele or Bomo falls into this category. The seeds that my father would not name were magical seeds. They were not supposed to grow into plants, but were related to the seeds to be planted the way a shepherd is related to his flock. Father said that grandfather had used them in his medicine room when he was alive, and through them was able to see everything that was happening on the farm. Grandfather also used a clay pot full of water as one of his surveillance tools. Today, my father does not know how to use that pot. He blames this on his poor relationship with his father, which was the result of his not having the privilege of a relationship with his grandfather. My father had also lost the secret of the unnamed seeds which knew when something was wrong with other plant life on the farm. On the farm. Father did not have a medicine room as grandfather had. Much knowledge had been lost with my grandfather's death, but the tradition continued even in its incompleteness. Colonialism and Christianity were responsible for the discontinuity of much tribal knowledge. Perhaps, if Father had not rejected the religion of his ancestors all those years, Grandfather would have been able to pass down much more to him. At the beginning of the planting ceremony, the priest of the earth shrine would take a single seed from each basket and deposit it in the lap of the spirit of the earth shrine. The following day, villagers, generally men, would perform a similar ceremony at their respective farms in the presence of the members of their families. 
This ceremony would be followed by the actual planting of the crops. To plant crops, the planter, generally a woman, bends down and digs a tiny hole with a hole she holds in her right hand. Into it, she deposits several grains held between the thumb and the first finger of the left hand. Then the hole is closed. The entire activity takes a few seconds. The right hand digs, the left hand pours seeds. The right hand closes up. If it rains that night, the grains will rise. If not, the birds will come digging as soon as the farm is deserted. Birds can smell seeds, even when buried. And besides, they watch all day while people plant, waiting for their chance. From early May to mid-August, we went to the farm every morning and worked hard till the middle of the afternoon. My mother would bring us lunch sometime before the sun reached the zenith, and we would eat in silence, as is the Dagara custom. We did not rest after the meal, and it was very difficult for me to work in the afternoon with my belly full. In the seminary, we used to take long naps after lunch, and habits, good or bad, are hard to break. By evening, I was so exhausted, all I could do was wash, eat, and go to sleep. My brothers, who felt stronger after dinner, sat in the compound and told stories and competed in riddles till they all fell asleep. The rainy season is tough, but but it is even tougher for the one whose body is not used to indigenous life. My life in this seminary had been smoother, quieter, far less demanding in terms of physical energy, even when we had athletic training. Indigenous life is a constant physical exercise, from plowing the earth with your bare hands to running after an antelope during the hunt to carrying huge stacks of wood for the fireplace. The body is constantly involved in expending energy. It is not surprising that my people don't have weight problems. The energy each person burns during the day is incalculable. No wonder the amount of food available always seems insufficient. My younger brothers always behaved as if they were starving. They would gulp down an enormous dish and yet keep sniffing around as if they had not eaten anything at all. Guillaume told me one day that he never knew what satiation felt like. He said he stopped eating when there was no more to eat. When my mother prepared meals, she always made two servings, one for the males and the other for the females. Father presided over male meals, and she presided over female meals. We always sat in a circle around the dish. The grown-ups sat on stools, and the young sat with their left legs folded under their butts as a seat. The evening meal about 10 o'clock was the most important of the day. It gathered together the whole family, including visitors, since in the Dagara tradition, no visitor can be denied food. Dinner began with the hand-washing ceremony. The male leader was first, followed by the next oldest person, and so on, till the youngest had washed. The first bit of food was always offered to the spirit of the earth shrine. This is called a clearance bite. My father always performed this ceremony. He would take a bit of cake and dip it into the sauce, say something rapidly between his teeth, 
then throw the thing away as if he did not want it. The dog loved it, even though it was not destined for him, but for the spirit of the earth shrine. Sometimes the dog would catch it in midair and swallow it at once as if he did not want to know what it tasted like. Then my father, who pretended not to pay attention to the fate of the first bite, would prepare another for himself. I noticed that his portion was larger. He would stick the whole portion into his mouth, hold it in there for a few seconds, and then nod his head before swallowing it. This was the signal that the dinner was safe to eat. Seven hands assaulted the dishes, determined to empty them, and the meal was enjoyed in silence. For the Dagara, there is no such thing as a plate for each person, because in the context of a real community, separate plates cultivate separateness. The older people were supposed to stop eating first, allowing the youngest to finish finish it all up. Anyone who burps is expected to stop eating immediately as that indicates that he or she is full. Eating with one's hands is a fascinating art. You are supposed to lick your fingers one by one after each swallow, starting with the front of each of the four fingers, then their backs, and finally the thumb. Then the entire finger must be taken into the mouth and carefully sucked. The person presiding over the meal is in charge of making sure that these rules are followed carefully. Consequently, any voice you hear rising during a meal is the leader's voice correcting bad eating habits, mostly related to finger licking. Children who are very hungry don't take the time to lick their fingers properly, so someone must be there to instruct them in good table manners. In this seminary, even though spoons, forks, and knives were always provided, we were never prohibited from eating with our hands except tacitly when a priest was among us. Thus, the only thing from my childhood that I never forgot was eating with my hands. I did so in the seminary as a way to stay in touch with something that seemed ancestral. My brothers were masterful at eating with their hands. Watching them at work around the huge bowl of food was like watching a performance. The agility with which they carried food, solid or liquid, to their mouths had something of the religious about it, as if the food were a living entity performing a life work on behalf of someone who needed it. The fact that eating is done communally and is gender-specific adds to its feeling of being a ritual. It took me a while to get used to eating out of a common dish again. Accustomed as I was in the seminary to having my own plate and cutlery, it was rather unpleasant to participate in a meal that seemed underneath the delicate, artistic, and focused gestures of the diners like a fierce competition. The speed with which my brothers ate amazed me and discouraged any attempt on my part to rival them. In the beginning, I took my time, unmindful of running out of food, and so I was always on the verge of not eating enough. At first, I was silent about my hunger, but my mother noticed it and discreetly intervened. She always put an extra plate in my room for me before she went to bed. One night, I asked her why. She hesitated, then said, 
I do not think I can recover from 15 seasons of life without you. But I am not hungry. I eat well with everybody. You need not tell me this. I am your mother. Since when are you my mother? She burst into tears. I felt sorry for her. My outburst made me realize, however, that I had not fully forgiven her. I felt cruel and ungrateful, but something prevented me from apologizing. Was my wounded ego all too eager to feed on the feelings of others? Mother defended herself. After we found out you were gone, I cried for months on end. I had a big fight with your father and asked him to find you and bring you home. He went out to get you several times, sometimes spending days away before returning empty-handed. Where did he go? I was just up the hill. How could he not find me? I knew, and he also knew very well where you were. The priest, the priest, those priests. Your father was going against the will of the foreign god. But we fought anyway. It was no use. The priest kept saying that only God could release you if he changed his mind. In the meantime, he would not let anyone interfere with you. So your father prayed for your release and I cried for it. I could not pray. I was too angry at God, believe me. It was a nightmare for all of us. So, according to my mother, I was a victim of the divine will. The thought rolled through my mind clothed in irony. If it was God's will that I be snatched from my home, whose God was that? You believed the priest on the hill was equipped with the power to detect the slightest will of God. What makes God happy or angry or indifferent? That's an odd power. A lot of what I had said was in French. Even though I had been home for nearly nine months, I still did not have enough vocabulary to articulate everything in plain Dagara. Because I lost my language at such an early age and learned another under such terrible duress, I was never again able to communicate in Dagara with anywhere near my fluency in French or English. I can't even think in my native language, and to the best of my memory, I never did. In spite of my linguistic difficulties, my mother understood. Did you suffer a lot? She asked, her voice strangled by sobs. The ways of God are always painful for humans to follow. I was not alone and that made things easier. What was it like there? Where? On the mission hill? 
you know what the mission hill is like the seminary is the same but many times bigger with houses on top of houses it is a whole village we lived like a tribe our elders were all white the ancestors were far away in europe we spent all our time getting acquainted with them did you like the white man there i liked the god i discovered i did not like the god i was asked to abide by i respected some of the ancestors i found in the white man's history but i didn't like them being called my ancestors and i didn't like the fact that my own ancestors were never mentioned it is not possible to like the ancestors of people who take without asking who harm in the name of their own god i hate to talk like this but you are my son grandfather was with me in my life there he really helped me make it through your grandfather bakai yes he was always there at the major intersections of my life i do not know if this is what made the difference but he kept me in touch with my ancestors how did he do that sometimes he would appear to me in my dreams sometimes i wouldn't even need to go to sleep while my mind burned with a desire to rest because it could not find an answer to some absurdity imposed on me the thought of grandfather would always come into my consciousness mother looked a little surprised but i knew she understood after all it was my grandfather who first saw what i would have to endure later and understood it as part of the burden of being Malidoma the one who befriends his enemies some day you should tell your father about this i'm sure he would like to hear about it and please let me feed you i know you are grown up you should be married now please let me catch up with 15 seasons of not having you with me i am a mother may i include you in who i am I will eat. I am sleepy too. Do both then. I felt as if a bridge now linked my mother to me. It had just been erected, or perhaps it was already there. August is a wet month in the tropics, but the abundance of rain is never taken as an evil thing. It is also the month when the millet grows faster and the hardships of farming are substantially reduced. talk about the harvest begins to circulate as well as talk about baor which means knowledge but is really a reference to initiation one evening after dinner i went to my room while the rest of the family gathered around for storytelling my mother used to leave a shea oil lamp burning in my room for me it emitted such a feeble light that one had to be half a meter from it to see anything There was no way of making more light at night and no one wanted any. I had light because I was not yet a real village person. Among the Dakara, darkness is sacred. It is forbidden to illuminate it, for light scares the spirit away. Our night is the day of the spirit and of the ancestors who come to us to tell us what lies on our life paths. 
To have light around you is like saying that you would rather ignore this wonderful opportunity to be shown the way. To the Dagara, such an attitude is inconceivable. The one exception to this rule is a bonfire. Though they emit a powerful glow, they are not prohibited because there is always drumming around them, and the beat of the drum cancels out the light. Villagers are expected to learn how to function in the dark. I was given light because I had lost the ability to deal with darkness, and each time people saw the timid light of the shea oil lamp in my room, they would walk away from it as if it signaled the presence of someone playing with the elements of the cosmos. No young man ever came to sit by me at night. That evening, after Mother lighted the lamp and left, my father came in. He had entered so discreetly that I did not notice him until he cleared his throat to announce both his presence and his intention to speak. I cleared mine too in response. I had nothing to say. There was always a sense of uneasiness and emptiness when I found myself alone with Father, as if a chasm lay between him and me that both of us would have to jump into to find out how our destinies were linked. But neither of us dared initiate this exploration. Neither of us knew how to do it. He addressed me with the formal Dagara greeting that presages something deep to come. Then he said he had met with the village council and wanted to speak to me about it. Was the meeting about me? I asked. Yes, and several others in the past have also been about you. You have been having meetings about me ever since I returned? Yes, of course. This is not because you are the first one to return to the village, but because you are the first to carry into the village the kind of knowledge you have. Knowing what you know is not common. It means that you have received the white man's bow. His spirit lives in you. In a way, you are not here yet. It's as if the real you is somewhere else, still trying to find the root home. The you sitting here in front of me is like the priest who came here 15 years ago and took you away from us. Your soul is in his hands. This is what the council is worried about. Am I responsible for allowing my soul to be stolen? You know you're not. No one is looking for someone to blame. No one is responsible for this. What lies in the mind of fate is always undecipherable. I should not have come home then. You can't say that. Because you are a tool to the fate of your name. No one knows if coming back is right or wrong, but you can't escape your destiny. So why am I of great concern? Why am I of such great concern? I have already explained that. You carry something in you, something very subtle, something that comes from your contact with the whites. 
And now you want to be here where you once belonged. You cannot live here as you are now without turning this place into what you are. This is what the white man did throughout the land of the black man. He could not be here without subverting our home to fit his needs. The people of this village all know that the white man's ways mean death. All these white people that came here to make trouble for us are possessed by the troubled ghost of their ancestors. This is because where the white men come from, people don't grieve because their dead are not at peace. The living cannot be either. This is terrible. These people are empty inside. Someone who does not have an inside cannot teach anyone anything. You are not white. And because you were born here, you must be made to fit into this place. You must be able to come home completely before your white nature changes your village by forcing it to come to you. When a person has been changed the way you have, one of two things always happens. Either you die into the old part of yourself, and that is painful, or you make everything else die into you. The first one is human. The second one is not. In the first case, wisdom is at work. In the second case, fear is at work. The elders want to give you the chance to adjust to your village before you make it adjust to you. So what is going on in the elders' minds? I don't know what they feel in their bellies, but I think they have many concerns. What you know has sealed you into a place that is unfamiliar to us, and yet you are here. One of our concerns is whether it is possible for you to be here and there at the same time. of anything father was saying or how to respond the seriousness in his voice convinced me that the elders considered this matter of prime importance but why should their worries bother me you said that what I know is keeping me somewhere else and now you ask if I can be in two places at the same time isn't that what I have been doing since the day I left this compound? While I was away, I was always dreaming about being back here. Now, 
every day. I see the things I experience here in terms of the seminary. I can't forget knowing how to read and write. And I don't want anyone to accuse me of anything behind my back. I know how your belly feels. I am not trying to punish you for what you know. Nor is the council trying to blame you for what happened to you. Some of the elders look at your experience among the whites as a good omen. They, they see, they have seen you read and write, but they want to ensure that you get something else in addition to the white man's knowledge so that you can be more present among us. The problem we are facing with you is not about an individual. It is about a community trying to learn from the past. Everyone has suffered at the hands of the white man, whether it be at school, in his church, or on the roads working for him. The spirit that animates the whites is extremely restless and powerful when it comes to keeping that restlessness alive. Wherever he goes, he brings a new order, the order of unrest. It keeps him always tense and uneasy, but that is the only way he can exist. It took our community a long time to come to understand this. The white man is not strong. He's scared. His whiteness is made of terror. Or otherwise, he would not be white. He is consumed by his terror and wrestles with it to stay alive. Until he is at peace with himself, no one around him ever will be. The elders want to quiet the white man in your soul. They do not know how, but they would like to try something. And what is it that they have in mind? Bao, initiation. They requested that I ask you this. Would you agree to submit to this season's Bao ritual? It will teach you the way of your ancestors and probably make you more a part of us than you are now. Do I have a choice? I don't know. You can say no, but no one knows what may happen. What I do know is that experiencing Bao will bring your soul back home and you will stop being a stranger to yourself and to us in other words according to the council I had not yet arrived home I did not know myself yet nor did I understand the extent of the fragmentation within my psyche the elders were aware of the forces at play within me and their concern translated into a desire to provide a cure 
for the forces that did not want me to come home. There was no doubt in my mind that within this whole village, even within my family, I was the only person who did not fit in. I had believed that time was going to change all this. As I became more and more accustomed to traditional life, I assumed I would be able to throw off the cloak of literacy that separated me from my people and became adequately integrated into the realm of nature within which the village found its meaning. Indigenous people find their rhythms in nature. Westerners, on the other hand, seem to seek meaning in the realm of the machine where one finds neither peace nor wholeness but ceaseless movement. In the West, people are always frenetically rushing somewhere in the countless lanes of the multiple highways of progress. Now, the elders were suggesting that a sure way to cure me would be to go to school of the ancestors and to be trained according to custom. This had never been tried before. As if he had been following my thoughts, Father continued from where my reflections left off. This situation has never occurred before. A man going into Baha'u'llah after having been initiated into something else. I don't know how deeply your experience among the whites has affected you. No one else seems to be able to tell either. What we are all sure about is that Baha'u'llah will be a serious challenge to you because you know things that Baha'u'llah would rather you did not. This knowledge will be like a wall in front of you that will want to keep you from digging into yourself the way people are expected to during this kind of experience. I thought about this business of knowing things that initiation would rather I didn't. And it dawned on me that literacy, from the traditional point of view, occupies a space, a space within the psyche that is reserved for something else. So my knowing how to read and write meant that I would never be able to access certain traditional knowledge as long as I lived. My father continued, Two diviners were assigned the task of designing a medicine that might help you. You remember what we did with Guiso? The others did not have to work with you directly. Last night, they reported to the council that they don't think their medicine is going to transform you all the way through. This means that there are certain things that don't want to be broken in you. The difficult part is that for your Baal to succeed, these things must be broken. It would be better for you if these things within you could be broken before Baal, otherwise this may all be an experiment that might not work. I am worried about you. I can't advise you whether to do this or not. I just carry the words of the elders. I want you to live.
do the diviners think the medicine they have prepared for me will not work all the way? There is a ghost in you. Something dead that does not like to confront anything having to do with life. This thing will be on the defensive each time you try to come alive. For you to live as one of us, that one is going to have to die. Right now, it is prepared to fight. Fire is cooking violence and resistance inside of you. If you allow the violence to have its way, it will kill you. I don't know what is fueling that violence. No one seems to know, but it is a ghost that comes from the wide world. Though it is not alive as a human being is alive, it still smells its death. I could understand Father's concern at my level of preparation for the initiatory experience, but I could not understand why he was so afraid for me. I knew nothing about Baor. When I was a small child, I had been too busy with Grandfather to realize that people were being initiated. I did remember his explaining to me that everything he told me would not have to be understood right away. Would Baor help me to understand some of what he had shared with me? I was not afraid of dying. Wasn't I already dead in some sense? Trapped between worlds as I was? If Baor was a way out of this trap, what choice did I have? If it would make my homecoming real, could I say no? And why was everyone so concerned about me? Anyway, when they could offer nothing better to rescue my divided soul, part of me was curious about what made my father hesitate. What did Baor really entail? What dangers did it hold? When I asked him to tell me about it, he replied, Accidents occur in these things. People die in Baor every year. It is part of the experience. If people who have never been outside the ancestral circle fall victim, what about a person who has lived most of his life outside. That's why I am afraid for you. Father was not in the mood to discuss the details of the experience, even though I was eager to know all about it. He kept saying that he could not tell me much because knowing about it would hinder me from the experience. I, on the other hand, was convinced that the more I knew, the more I could increase my chances of survival. At last, he said in a firm and convincing tone, Knowing what Baor is will not protect you. It will only save you from being initiated. This is not what you need. You cannot want Baor and protection at the same time. It's like wanting day and night at the same time. The very reason you need Baor is because you grew up protected. Protection is toxic to the person being safeguarded. 
This is because no one can effectively protect anyone. When you protect something, the thing you are keeping safe decays. People come into this life with a purpose that enables them to protect themselves. You are your own and best guardian. You go into Ba'or to save yourself from the lethal protection of other people. If I told you what my Ba'or was like, I would have to be your protector for the rest of your life. And that is deadly. All this seemed utterly strange to me. How had our conversation led to this? I began to feel suspicious and confused as if the whole idea of Bao was some sort of trap to get rid of me. In the seminary, hadn't I read novels in which such things happened? When I tried to discuss my fears with my father, he declined any further conversation. The night is late and there is work to do at sunrise. The elders will want to meet with us in the evening. That's also what I came to tell you. He left without wishing me good night. The timid red light bleeding out of my lamp flickered and went out. There was no more shea oil to feed it. My head was heavy with thought. Though I felt too exhausted to deal with it, I wanted to think, but I also wanted to rest. I lay down, defenseless and let sleep take over.